Good evening, Mercy View. My name is Jema Raubach. I'm a partner here at Mercy View. I'm reading from God's Word tonight in Romans 15, verses 22 through 32. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this, and I have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Um, good evening. My name's Trey. I am on staff here at Mercy View. Uh, tonight we're going to be looking at these last 12 verses of Romans chapter 15. I'm going to apologize in advance because we're in Oklahoma and it's allergy season. And so if I sneeze while I preach, it'll be a first for me. Um, and uh, don't feel obligated to say bless you, okay? It'll be a big unison cry on the live stream. Um, and so I, hopefully the sneeze I just had a second ago during the scripture reading is the last one that I have this evening. Um, as a teenager, I spent a lot of time at church camps and youth conferences uh, centered around church things. Uh, I was rather enmeshed in the church culture that I grew up in and did everything that my denomination offered, plus some. Uh, even before becoming a youth pastor, I had spent a lot of times at uh, camps and conferences. Uh, I, I've literally been to dozens of these things. I think I was talking to Ricky, who's used to be here at Mercy View. He's going with Memorial to Falls Creek next week. And I was like, yeah, I think I've been to like 55 church camps. And so I've heard a lot of church camp and youth conference messages uh, and I, I got a rather large dose of a particular kind of message, uh, particularly in the mid-2000s to late-2010s, which using those decades in that way makes me feel really old. Um, and, and each of these things had one big takeaway. God wants you to be a world changer. You're going to do big and amazing things for God. Like that was the thrust and the drive of, at camp at least, one night out of the week, and at every youth conference and, and thing that you went to, that's the big message you got to take away, is God wants you to change the world. If I had a dollar for every time that I heard, this is the generation that's going to change the world, I would own Twitter, not Elon. From the kind of messages preached, you get the idea that Scripture is this giant compilation of epic tales 
Not unlike the kind of tales you find in Greek and Norse mythology with heroes that did big things for God. And if you have the kind of faith that Gideon had or the courage of a Daniel and David or the cunning of Ehud, if you don't know Ehud, go look at Judges 3, starting in verse 12. That one's a fun one. Then you could change the world like they did. And to be sure, these men and their actions changed the world, or at the very least, their corner of it. And for sure, we could say that the author of our text tonight changed the world. Paul traveled over 10,000 miles, mostly on foot, sharing the gospel. Gospel. He lived like a hitchhiking nomad, considered everything that he had gained as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. He was a world changer, and he was radical in the way that he lived. And so the takeaway at every youth camp and every youth conference was always this. Live that kind of radical life and God will use you to be a world changer. And that is a heck of an appeal to a teenager like me, ambitious, self-absorbed, and really wanting to be the guy on the stage giving the inspirational speech. And it's also a crippling charge to the introverted kid that doesn't want the dude three rows in front of him to even know what his name is, much less be the guy standing on the stage. Maybe you grew up in the church too and you have similar or adjacent stories to that. You you have an idea of the experience. There's a, a real kind of motivation that comes from the hype, a real rallying cry that's easy to get behind when the vision is big and the stakes are high and it feels like you can make a difference. And then you graduate high school and you go off to college and maybe you still have some of that youthful zeal and ambition to change the world. But soon enough, you finish your undergrad, you head off into the real world, and all of a sudden you come to realize that life is pretty mundane. And the Christian life in particular has this mundane routine to it that's a feature, not a bug. Being a member of a local church, even if you're all in and you're volunteering each week, you're participating in small groups and Bible studies and digging into a D group, it still fundamentally has this ordinary nature to it. Sunday worship, midweek GC, D group, they all become an ordinary part of your life rhythm. It is a far cry from the spectacular call to live radical and change the world that sells books, fills conferences, and gets teenagers super hyped up at church camp. Maybe you didn't grow up in church or that aspect of the church subculture wasn't your story. I think, though, that all of us in some way can relate to this sentiment. You'll likely get the same feeling that goes along with it just by being online. Scrolling Instagram or TikTok or YouTube. Like in the last 10 years, we have turned the noun that described being an adult into a verb. We call it adulting. Because the ordinary, everyday activities of being an adult is so far removed from the life we feel that we want or the life that we're being sold every time we open up our phones. Living an ordinary life going through the mundane and normal routines of being a responsible adult feels somehow deflating when you live in an Instagram world. 
And so as we consider our text tonight here at the end of Romans, in the end of Romans 15, what we find is a call to see the gospel advance in the world and the kingdom of God break into the kingdom of darkness, which indeed has some world-changing effects, and that's a pretty big deal. And Romans 15 is a world-changing missionary passage. It just reads like a travel itinerary. It's not a high-octane motivational speech. The reality is upon initial investigation, Romans 15, 14 through 16, 18, it's kind of meh, right? When, when you open it up and just look at it, you got Paul's plans to go and do some stuff and a bunch of people that he's saying hi to. Coming off the massive theological treatise that is Romans 1 through 11, and then getting these three heavy-hitting passages on Christian ethics built on that masterpiece of theological truth, it can feel like when we read, I hope to visit you on my way to Spain, and a bunch of say hi to blank for me, it can just feel a little anticlimactic. There's no big crescendo with a massive charge for us to go and do. There's no massive call to action that reads as literary fireworks. There's simply an explanation of what Paul has done, is doing, and hopes to do. And it's all rooted in this confidence that God is sovereign and that he is ruling and reigning. And so tonight, I have two things I want us to see. Two principles about the way that God's kingdom advances, that this travel itinerary helps us see. And the first is this. We need to see that the kingdom of God advances through ordinary and mundane means. In particular, God accomplishes his work in the world when the saints plan, give, and pray. And then we need to know with confidence that the kingdom of God advances by God's will, exercised and accomplished through those ordinary means. So first then, how does the kingdom of God advance? The kingdom advances through the ordinary and the mundane. We could look at the book of Acts and see that there's all sorts of spectacular things that happen just in Paul's life and missionary journeys. I mean, for Paul, this whole journey with Jesus starts when Jesus shows up, drop kicks him off of a horse, causes him to go blind, sends him to the city he was going to capture and execute Christians and has one of those Christians come and heal him and changes the entire course of his life. That's, that's some fireworks. He miraculously survives stoning, snake bites, shipwrecks, and prison. He heals the sick, raises the dead, casts out demons. He preaches to the leading thinkers in the philosophical center of the ancient world. In Acts 17, when he goes to the Areopagus in Athens and begins to explain the gospel to them, he causes a massive riot in Ephesus because the gospel that he's been preaching, it had so destroyed the silver trade because nobody wanted to buy idols anymore. Because they realized that Christ is Lord. Yet between each of these moments are gaps in time that last anywhere from weeks to years where nothing of note is recorded. They are summed up in sentences. And we stayed here for 
a while. And we left and departed for such and such place. In fact, we find out in Acts 18 that Paul, for a season, sets up shop as a tent maker in the city of Corinth because he ran into some believers that he needed to disciple who also were tent makers. And he lives there and he works. And when he writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians, he's adamant to say that he didn't do anything spectacular or big. He just preached the gospel. This ordinary means of grace. His missional activities required the ordinary means of grace, not just the dramatic events, the exciting events. He took three big journeys, and each one of them required planning, each one of them required generosity, and each one of them had to be bathed in prayer. And those are the three ordinary means of grace I want us to consider tonight because they're what we see in Romans 15. Paul mentions them explicitly here. We, we, we see the kingdom of God advance through planning, giving, and prayer. First, the kingdom of God advances as the people of God intentionally plan for kingdom advancement. This is something we see throughout Paul and in his closing words here in Romans. But if we back up to last week's text, we see that through Paul, the gospel has had quite a journey. Thousands of miles, mostly by foot. And now he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has been named. And so for him, that means setting his eyes as far west as he could go in the Roman world. He looks to Spain. Rome already has the gospel. In a sense, it's a pass-through for him. His plan to come and visit them is simply like stopping at a friend's house to hang out for a bit on your way to the final destination. And he's made plans. And this isn't the first time. Verse 22 says that this is the reason why I've been so often hindered from coming to you. He's made plans. God hasn't allowed him to follow through on those plans. And so he's making plans again. But now, since I no longer have any room to work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. We know that Paul's planned to come. He says as much in chapter 1, verse 9, but he's been hindered, implying that though his plans have been made, God has had other plans. And what's interesting to note is that the plans that he's making right now planning to come to Rome, planning to go to Spain, they don't go exactly like he expects. He's going to make his journey to Rome after he goes to Jerusalem, but he's not going of his own volition in one sense. He's going in chains because when he gets to Jerusalem, he gets arrested. He spends years in prison in Judea before finally being, after appealing to Caesar, stuck on a ship and making a long journey to Rome. And so if even Paul's best laid plans don't get accomplished or go according to plan, a really good question for us is how is intentional planning the way that the kingdom of God advances? Because Paul's done quite a bit of it, and it's not seeming to work out that great for him. Now, be thinking to yourself, Trey, your point here is that the kingdom advances through planning, but every plan you've talked about Paul making, well, it's a plan that failed. So it seems to undercut the point a bit. And, and that's a great question. 
But I think the answer is no, it doesn't actually undercut it because Paul is planning the same way that James tells us to plan in James chapter 3 or 4 verses 13 through 15. See, James says to us as he's writing, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Now I often find myself being the first part of that passage. I'm always encouraged because Brad is very often the second part of that passage. We'll be talking about someone say, let's just go do it. And he says, you know what, if the Lord wills for us to do that, we're going to go do that. And it's a good reminder for somebody like me who is admittedly ambitious and wants to go and do some things. And Paul is that way as well, but Paul has this in his mind. He knows that everything he plans and everything that he wants to do is fully and totally dependent on the will of God. Notice James doesn't say, you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, so stop making plans and live in the moment. Live for today. Planning's not the problem. The problem is planning according to our own wisdom and with confidence in our own ability to make things happen. And so how can Paul continue to make plans to do this or that and to speak with confidence of what he's going to do when it seems like so many of his plans are derailed from the start? It's because he plans with confidence in God working to accomplish his own will. And how that works itself out, he doesn't know, but he's going to submit his plans, this ordinary means of life that all of us have to do, to God and trust him. Listen, the Christian makes plans for the future, but submits those plans to the will of God. There's two sinful ditches that we can fall into when it comes to planning for the future. We can fall into the ditch of planning without giving God or His will a second thought. Planning without submission. For example, if maybe you're mapping out your career and and you, you think about taking a new job or seeking a promotion... And it would move you to a new city or even a new country. And and you fail to consider whether or not doing such a thing is something that God would desire for you or not. On paper, it may look perfect and it may look fine. And it may be what God has for you, but if you haven't submitted it to His will, you're planning without submission. You're planning under your own power and under your own strength, instead of saying, listen, if this is what God has, I want to do it. But if he doesn't, I'm going to trust him. Your only plan and consideration is how will this affect my budget or how is this going to affect my enjoyment of my work and not is God being glorified by my planning. Or if I plan for this and it doesn't happen, am I submitted to God's sovereignty in such a way that it's not going to completely crush me? That's the first ditch. The second ditch that we can fall into with our plans is the one that I see in in certain spaces a a lot when I'm reading online, and it's this. It's it's the carpe diem approach, right? Seize the day. YOLO. Live for the moment. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Live for now. 
Instead of faithfully submitting your plans to Christ, you just do what makes you happy in the moment. It's this hedonistic approach to the way that we live life and do things, and it never looks to align our life to how Jesus has taught us to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. And what Paul's explanation of his plans shows us is how to live our life in submission to God's will as we plan out the things that we do. God wants us to plan. He just wants us to do it while thinking about him and his will and his kingdom. We see him longing for Rome. He's hoping to preach in Spain. But never once do we see Paul complaining that things aren't moving at the speed at which he would like. That things constantly come up and shift and focus gets moved. We never see him complain, but we do see him continue to plan and dream and hope up until the moment that he couldn't anymore. And we may be tempted to think that all of that planning and preparation was for naught. It was wasted time, inefficient, useless. And I heard a pastor as I was studying this week mention that though all of Paul's planning didn't exactly result in him actually making it to Spain, most scholars think he never actually set foot in Spain, that he went to Rome and that's where his final breath was drawn. This pastor said part of the reason that he wrote the book of Romans was to prepare them to receive him and then send him on. He didn't want to just be like a buddy who surfs in and is crashing on their couch and then ask them for money before he leaves to do something bigger and better. He wanted them to be prepared. And this pastor made the comment, he said, could it be that God placed a desire in Paul to see the gospel proclaimed in Spain? This burning thing in his heart, knowing he would never make it so that the book of Romans would be written. See, part of God's plan was for this book that we've expounded for the last two and a half years to be written for his church and for his people. And Paul submitted his life to that plan of God. Maybe you're discouraged tonight because there's dreams that you've had, dreams to serve God and see the gospel proclaimed, and all your plans seem to be thwarted at every turn. I know multiple missionaries, friends of mine who were forced to leave the hard work that they had done for years on the mission field during COVID. The pandemic struck and they had to leave the country. And they had all these plans and all these dreams and these things they wanted to do. And they today still even dream and plan of going back and have yet been able to do that. Was their planning wasted? Was their time and their energy wasted? doesn't mean their hopes and dreams and desires, even if they never get to return to the work that they had set their hands to do. Does it mean they were wrong to plan and dream? No. Because we plan and we hope and we dream. And with James, we say, if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. And we can have hope. That as Paul says in Philippians 2, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And his will and his work never fails. And so we press on. 
when we do the ordinary work of planning and submitting to God's will. Here's the second thing that we see, the secondary, second ordinary means of grace that the kingdom advances through. Uh, it's the generosity of the saints toward one another. Paul mentions the offering to the saints in Jerusalem in a couple of his letters. He mentions it here again in Romans. There's a famine that's taking place in Judea, and the Christians in that region are in desperate need. And so Paul is put together an offering from churches that he's helped to start, or that he's had heavy influence in, and in northern Greece and across the Aegean and in Asia Minor, these heavily Gentile areas, and he's putting together this offering from the Gentile churches for the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. That's what this offering was for, was for the poor in Jerusalem. And Paul ties it to this sense of duty that he believes the Gentile Christians owe to their Jewish brothers and sisters. Look at verse 27. He says, for they were pleased to do it And indeed, they owe it to them. For if Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. One of the ordinary means of kingdom advancement that God uses and calls all believers to participate in is generosity. And that for sure includes giving to the local church as God's stewards of his resources to see the kingdom advance in a particular city or region. However, that's not the, just the kind of generosity that Paul has in view here. And that's important for us to know because when we think of kingdom advancing generosity and giving, it's almost always a tide, most of the time in our minds, to throw in some dollars at somebody else doing some work. I'm not discounting that at all. It's important. And in the coming weeks and months, we're probably going to be asking you guys to be generous in that way toward some efforts and things that we have here at Mercy View. But what Paul is talking about is a kind of generosity that's rooted in some explicitly missional activity or effort. Or not rooted in that, but it's, it's in an obligation of love for one another in Christ. Jesus says in John thirteen thirty five that people will know that we are his disciples by the way that we love one another. And in, John, uh, in 1 John 3, 17, he goes a little bit further and explains um, what that looks like. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. This gift that Paul is collecting for the saints It's not going to fund another missionary journey. But it is maybe even more missional than that. It's putting on display for the world that the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, hundreds, maybe it points thousands of miles away from Jerusalem, are part of the same body as these poor saints. And there is a love that they have for them, though they have never met them, because they are united together in Christ. And their love is a testament for the world of the truth and the goodness of the gospel. Most of you, do you realize how much of a witness your love toward one another is, your generosity toward one another is for the world that doesn't know Jesus? Consider the kind of witness it is to someone's coworker or family member who doesn't know the Lord when 
you face tragedy or someone in your body, your, your circle in the GC or in your D group or here in the church faces tragedy or loss or maybe they're welcoming in a new baby like happens all the time here at Mercy View. And the church community rallies around them in such a way, right, that, that maybe there's not even uh, an opportunity like for somebody else who has maybe a, a familial tie to them, right, to come and step into that space because the need's been met in such a way by the people of God being generous toward them. And they go, wow, like what kind of obligation do these people have to you? Yet, yet they have been so generous it speaks a better word. It speaks a good word about who God is and what he's done in bringing us together. And this isn't something that's super extraordinary. It's just part of living life together in Christ. It is ordinary. It is mundane. And yet it shows a watching world that there's something to the Christian life that exudes selflessness and generosity toward one another in the midst of a selfless world, a selfish world. That's something that marked the early church. And eventually, a couple centuries after Paul, it actually is one of the things that helped bring the gospel alive in the Roman world and began to transform the culture around them. And it was simple and ordinary uh, there's an account in the early 4th century from a, a bishop in Caesarea named Asubius who wrote how Christians responded to famine and plague, the kind of things that constantly seem to be happening in the Roman Empire. He says, all day long, some of them, the Christians, tended to the dying and to their burial. Countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. The Christians' deeds were on everyone's lips, and they glorified the God of the Christians. Such actions convinced them that they alone were pious and truly reverent to God. It was this pattern of love for one another and for their neighbor that transformed the world. It wasn't flashy, and in the moment, I'm sure it didn't look or feel very world-changing, but the ordinary generosity of those who are marked by a new life in Christ, in fact, did change the world. Last ordinary means of kingdom advancement I want us to look at before we wrap up is prayer. Now, prayer is something that we can and should rightly associate with the power of God. In fact, prayer can result in some quite spectacular things but prayer is also something that's meant to be an ordinary part of our lives. As Paul hopes to take the gospel to Spain and visit Rome, he simply asks the church to pray for him. Look at verse 30. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. A pretty ordinary prayer request related to the needs that he has in the moment. And though all the things that he asked them to pray for didn't go exactly as he would have wanted, or maybe even exactly as they prayed, his trip to Jerusalem, bathed in the prayers of the saints, it still resulted in the kingdom of God advancing. 
Paul was able to proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem. After he was arrested, he spent two years explaining the gospel to the rulers of the region. And he was eventually sent to Rome, where his goal was to proclaim the gospel to Caesar himself. It doesn't get more day-to-day than prayer, and yet God has decided that prayer is how those how he wants to see his kingdom come. Um, we have some of these, I think, still in the back of the info center. We printed off a bunch of them. I think there's a lot. If you haven't grabbed one of these yet, uh, this is one of our prayer cards for some of the folks that are doing mission after being sent out from Mercy View. Uh, there's five folks when you turn on the back. Uh, we got some unnamed partners because we got some partners doing some work in parts of the world uh, that are pretty sensitive. Listen, this is a good reminder that the ordinary things we do like praying, this, this one sits above my windshield uh, in the visor in my truck. It's a reminder that we can pray for the work that God's doing through the Hoyts in Albuquerque. As the saints pray for the work that they're doing, as we pray for their strength and encouragement and favor, and it's amazing what God can do to break through to the hearts of people in that city. Now, do we know how the gospel is going to break through the hearts and lives of men and women in Latvia as we pray for the Robinsons? Or in Oldham as we pray for the Campbells? Or in the Middle East as we pray for the partners we've sent that are doing work there? We don't know exactly how he's going to do it, but we know that one of the means of grace that God has decided to have his kingdom break into the world through is something as ordinary as prayer. The kingdom of God advances in the world through ordinary and mundane things like making plans, being generous, and praying. As we bring it to a close tonight, we also need to see and remember that the kingdom of God advances by the will of God. Jesus taught his disciples to pray that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Kingdom advancement is something that we should desire But submission to God's will is the posture that we have to take in all things. That's the posture we see in Paul. He plans, and he shares those plans with his friends. He asks for prayer. He asks for prayer for specific things that we know they don't turn out just like he plans and just like he wanted. And in verse 32, we see him agree with what we read from James earlier, that his plans and his desires were to be submitted to the will of God. He says, so that by the will, by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed by your company. And he comes to them. And I think he came to them in joy, even though he was in chains. I'm convinced that he came to them and was refreshed, even though he was not free, because his life was full of submission to the will of God and seeing his kingdom advance in spite of his circumstances. He was submitting his life to God's will for his kingdom to come according to God's plan and not his own. I'm convinced of this because of how the book of Acts ends. Paul's in Rome. He's under house arrest. And we read in Acts 28.30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. He was undeterred. He received others with joy and gladness, and he sought, even imprisoned, 
to proclaim the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. No miracles recorded or in sight. No large crowds in culturally elite spaces. Just anyone willing to hear the gospel as he expressed it and expounded it in his living room. Let me leave you with this. In what ordinary ways are you submitting to God's will and looking to see his kingdom come and his will be done? Are you connecting your day to day to God's story? Or has the ordinary become so routine that you fail to see the spectacular nature of God's grace that's mingled into it? Will we tonight commit to seeing the ordinary as God's extraordinary means of grace to bring his kingdom and will to bear on earth as in heaven? One moment, one person, one conversation at a time. Let's pray.